Were you saved? Are you saved? Will you continue to be saved? And what does it mean to be saved? We're going to talk about these questions and more today on Dwell on Truth. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dwell on Truth show. I'm Dan Bodwin. And my name is Brenton Powers. And we're so glad that you guys joined us today as we continue our trip through the Gospel of John. Today, we're going to continue on chapter 10 of John, starting with verse 22 and going through to the end of the chapter, and we're going to be talking about some great and important topics today, like the identity of Jesus, what he says about himself and the clarity of that message, the problem when it comes to believing, and the behavior of Jewish religious leaders shows us something about that. We'll talk more about Jesus as the Good Shepherd and the relationship between the Father and the Son and his sheep. We're going to talk about salvation and can you lose it? Or is it once saved, you're always saved? A controversial question. So let's get into it. We're going to go a verse at a time and uh, go through the details and see what God shows us. Unleashing God's word one verse at a time. Yeah, it's a good thing. So starting with verse 22, do you want to go back and forth and read it like we've done in the past, Brenton? Yeah, let's read verse by verse in John chapter 10, verse 22 through the end. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, that you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again, across the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. That's the chapter. It is. Shall we go back verse by verse and see what we can draw out of this? And hopefully these truths will be received by our minds and our hearts and change our lives. Amen. So verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And the Feast of Dedication, you remember what they're talking about in that one? Isn't that Hanukkah? Yeah, so it's winter time. Yeah, and that could be translated, it was stormy. So winter, Mm -hmm. stormy weather, you could start this story with the setting of one stormy night in Jerusalem. Yes. It could have been daytime, <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's just walking into the temple. Yes, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Yeah, not teaching, not doing anything other than, well, it doesn't really say, but it doesn't indicate he was teaching or being involved in anything. He was visiting the temple. Probably on his way to teach. Probably. As he had a pattern of teaching in the temple courts, and people would gather around and listen. But then there were some obstacles in verse 24. There gathered around him a crowd of people that you could see as wolves, maybe trying to keep him from going into the temple and preach. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's speculation, but he does seem to get ambushed here. Yeah. Certainly there were wolves that wanted to keep the shepherd from the sheep. There's no doubt about that. 
So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, now in this one, when they say the Jews, they, they are talking about the religious leaders, not just the Jews in general, correct? Correct. Yeah, that, yeah. We often see that. We're not anti-Semites. The Bible is not anti- yeah. an anti-Semitic book. The Jews, that's just mm-hmm. a term that John uses to describe the religious leaders, who many of them had not yet received Jesus. Yeah, it's not an anti-Jewish thing. The writers were all Jewish, and the, all the original um, apostles were Jewish. So, But their questions, let's talk about this part. It says, how long will you keep us in suspense? Another translation says, how long will you keep us in doubt? As mm. if Jesus is the one to blame for their doubt. Yeah, not at all. And we kind of get this a lot on the streets, too, don't we? Where people act as if their unbelief is something that's God's fault or Jesus' fault, that he didn't give them enough information. The information is unclear. Who Jesus claims to be is unclear. And I don't think that's the case at all. We've seen statement after statement from Jesus about himself from the beginning of this book that make clear what the claim was that he was making. Yeah, we can go through some of those quotes, but first, just understand the point that Mm -hmm. we cannot blame Jesus for our doubts. No. It's not because of lack of evidence Mm-mm. or lack of revelation, but it's a blindness or a hardness of heart that uh, yeah. people are responsible for their own unbelief. Mm-hmm. So don't blame Jesus for your doubts, <laughs> but change your mind, which is the word repent. Yes. Reconsider what Jesus actually has revealed, and it's clear if you're open for the evidence. Mm-hmm. Based off of verse 25, Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. So what did Jesus tell us about himself so far in the Gospel of John? He said so many things. I think you have a list, don't you, Brenton, of just some of the things that he said? Yeah, just to this point in the Gospel of John, he told them that I came from heaven. He told Mm -hmm. them whoever believes in me would have eternal life. He told Mm -hmm. them I am the unique Son of God. He told them I will judge all of humanity. He told them that everyone should honor me as they honor the Father, and that the Hebrew scriptures all speak of me. He told them, I perfectly reveal God the Father. He told them, I always please God and never sin. He told them, I am uniquely sent from God. He told them, before Abraham was, I am. He told them, I will raise myself from the dead, that I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd. These are all things Jesus had just told them, and yet they're saying, well, why are you keeping us in doubt? Why don't you tell us who you are? He's been telling them, and he's going to continue to tell them who he is. Yeah. I've brought this up before, but I talk to Muslims online frequently, and they have these kind of misgivings. Well, why didn't Jesus just come right out and say, I am God, worship me? And one of their apologists made the implication that because Jesus didn't say those specific words, that somehow he never claimed to be God. But so many of the things in that list that you just read are things that can only uniquely be said by Jesus. They're not statements that just any good person or any religious leader can say. They're clearly claims of equality with God and deity and perfection. And you can't get around those things if you're going to be honest with the text. Yeah, and Jesus does a good job of defending himself, so we don't we don't even have to defend and answer their accusation here. Jesus himself is the best debater. He's the best revealer of who he is. <laughs> yes. And sometimes we'll, people will come to us and say, can you prove that God is there? Like, as if the burden's on our shoulders. God's already proven that he exists. He's demonstrated yes. it through what he's made. He's revealed it to our consciences. Oh, there's so many different yes. lines of evidence we can remind people of, mm-hmm. but so often the problem is not really intellectual or lack of information or no, no. revelation. It's we got to recognize that really people are trying to shift the burden of proof onto God when the burden is on them. Will they believe what he's revealed or not? And what that shows is where their heart is at. It's mm-hmm. not a lack in us. If they don't believe, they can't blame anyone but themselves. No, I would agree. If I could just make a comment on that, because um, I taught on evangelism, and I want to just you know share something with our, our specifically our Christian believers that are out there. It is true that the problem that we have, that anybody has with believing Jesus, is not at base an intellectual problem. It's a moral and spiritual problem. People 
choose to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's absolutely true. But God can and does use good evidence in the process of bringing people to himself. So for Christians who want to tell other people about Jesus, it's okay for them to ask questions. Just understand that it's ultimately a spiritual thing. It's something between them and God that's going to make the difference. Um, and if you are not a Christian, you know, it, it's okay to dig and to look for those answers and try to understand them and just make sure that you examine your own presuppositions to make sure that those questions are sincere and you're not just putting a wall as an excuse not to get right with God. Right. Yeah, I was speaking about people who, over and over again, God has revealed himself to them. Absolutely. And Jesus here had been in Israel for his whole life, and he's been ministering throughout uh, Jerusalem for, for years. And so these people should have known by now who he was. Absolutely. And so it kind of makes me think about, you know, often we're on the, the Flight 1080 show. Mm-hmm. There's some people who we continue to love, we continue to reveal truth to, even though they Mm -hmm. don't believe, and we're patiently hoping that through continuing to reveal the truth, even though they should know it by now, that they'll change their mind. And as long as they're willing to listen to what the truth is, and they're willing to listen to us, they're willing to rehearse some of the reasons why we believe, then I think that's an open door. But if people ask in a way just to shut us down, then I usually want to move on from that conversation. Something I hadn't thought about before, but that you, your statements, your thoughts just brought to my mind is just how patient Jesus was <laughs> with the people around him. That it should have been so obvious and was so obvious who he was. And he still patiently keeps sharing and keeps preaching. And, and my goodness, the way that he condescends to listen to us and our silliness down here sometimes is just amazing. We don't deserve that kind of patience, but he so often gives it anyway. Yeah, and his patience is like one of his main characteristics. He's slow to anger, bounding in loving kindness. But we Mm -hmm. also need to remember that he is a God of justice and wrath, Mm -hmm. as well as love. And so his slow to anger, there does come a time when it's time's up it's and he gives he gives you a certain amount of time so don't take his patience as a sign of approval he's waiting yes looking for people to repent so they will not perish yeah. but none of us have a guarantee of how long we have to live so we need to be urgent about getting right with god because there will come a time where we will have to give an answer for why did you reject all of the times that you heard the gospel? Mm. So if you're a non-believer and you've listened to this show several times and you still resist and deny that Jesus is clear about who he is, then maybe take Jesus's words here as a sign that it's about time that you should know who I am. He says, I told you and you do not believe. There's a little bit of, Mm. not impatience there, but there's a little bit of urgency there. Since he's told us, we should believe, in other words. And the second half of the verse, so this would be part two of the verse that I really think there's some good application here as well. Not only what he's told us, but the actual works that Jesus does. He says, says, Mm. the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. So he didn't just tell them, he showed them. This is actually a general principle that you can know somebody by their words and their works. You can come Mm -hmm. to know who and what they are by observing what they say and what they do. And it's the same with Jesus. Since he does the works of God and he speaks the words of God and he claims to be the son of God, then we ought to take him at his word and at his works because he shows that he is indeed the Messiah. Amen. There should be no doubt about that. No, none at all. So one application, therefore, is do you recognize that Jesus is the only good person? He only did good. Mm -hmm. He always loved people. He never sinned. And on the flip side, do you understand that we are not good people? If we were judged by our deeds and our words, we've all said things and done things that we shouldn't do. And we haven't always said things and done the things that we should do. So therefore, we should recognize Jesus is not only the good shepherd, but he's the only good person. And so if I can preach the gospel from this point, only Jesus passes the good person test. The rest of us need to receive his righteousness and let him take our sins as he was the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep, as John calls him, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Will you let him take our sinful words and works and would you receive his righteousness? That's really what it means Mm -hmm. to become a Christian. 
to trust in Jesus as the good person that is our substitute on the cross so that we can receive his righteous record and stand before God, not in our own righteousness, but in his. Amen. Let him bring you into his flock. Amen. Good word. Thanks. So now we're going to get into a uh, interesting section because it has some important but challenging ideas in here. It's interesting to talk about and uh, to share with you guys because this is an area where Brenton and I don't agree with each other completely. We both believe that the, and and agree that the Bible is absolutely true. Um, But even knowing that, there are some areas that are challenging. Yeah, I would say there's some truths that Jesus lays out here. That's why I kind of want to go through it piece by piece, because there's truths that Jesus says, and we would both affirm Jesus is speaking the truth, but how we interpret some of these truths may be different. Absolutely. There's a spectrum when it comes to the big question of eternal security, for example. That's really what we're talking about. It is. It is. Do you believe you can lose your salvation? People have different opinions. And someone actually came up to us on the street at the Monterey Wharf and asked this question. Do you believe in once saved, always saved? How did he word that question? Do you believe you can lose your salvation? It was something along those lines. Actually, I think it was more leading questions. It was more like, what do you think about once saved, always saved, which is the idea um, for the uninitiated that once you've repented and confessed Jesus Christ and trusted in him alone, that you're saved and you can never lose that salvation. That's the idea of once saved, always saved. Yeah, and I personally, I kind of backed out of that conversation because I know that Dan stands has his position. Yes. So Dan was on one side, and we have another friend who was down there who he doesn't agree with the once saved, always saved formula as some would put it. And he has an opposite position. And I kind of feel like I'm in the middle. There's some truths that Jesus is clear about. But in my opinion, like the scripture doesn't say flat out, you can lose your salvation or you cannot lose your salvation. It says certain things that we will interpret through the lens of which side we are on. Mm -hmm. You know, the people who believe you can lose your salvation may have a list of scriptures that seem to underscore or prove that point. And the people who believe that you're once saved, always saved, and there's nothing you can do or anyone can do for you to not be saved later. Mm-hmm. There's verses on both sides. Yeah, I personally don't want to take a position on a question the Bible has. I wouldn't say conflicting views, but there's ways of harmonizing it in my mind. And so that's kind of how I deal with those questions. I don't like the question, can you lose your salvation? Because the Bible never speaks of your salvation as something you can lose or not lose. I think of when Jesus said to the church in Revelation, you've left left your first love. So for me, maybe it's a more biblical question to ask, can you leave your salvation? Because if you lose something, then you don't know where it is. You don't know where to find it again. Hmm. If you've left, and I personally would say there are verses that, that indicate it's possible to leave, but it's not a primary essential for me, and so we don't really debate it, and today we're not going to debate it, but just as a primer, as an introduction, if this is something that troubles you, because some Christians are troubled by the theological ideas and they want to resolve every question, then, well, do your own research, see what the Bible says about this topic, and we'll talk about it from the standpoint of what Jesus says here that seems to lean toward the once saved, always saved conclusion. Yes, yes. So, verse 26. So, what truths can we get out of verse 26? When Jesus says, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I see the simple truth that Jesus' sheep believe. That's correct. That's kind of by definition, if you're a sheep of Jesus, if he's your shepherd, how do you become a sheep? Well, you become a sheep by believing. And that's who how you continue to be a sheep is by believing. But that yeah, that's reading it through my lens of believe and abide in belief. That shows that you are a sheep. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you talked about reading it through your lens. I, I don't think it's possible for any of us not to read it through some kind of a lens. We have our, our presuppositions that we bring to the text and and we're gonna do our best to only pull those foundation points from the text. But it's not always easy to do. Would your lens, Dan, be, let me guess, and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Yeah, <laughs> okay, go They ahead. become a sheep, and because he makes them a sheep, then they believe as a consequence of that regeneration? Correct. 
Correct. That um, they are, they do not believe because they are not among his sheep. And yeah, I believe that there is a a work of regeneration. And this is one of those things where both of us would agree that for us to rightly understand God's word, there needs to be a work of regeneration in the heart by the Spirit of God. And, you know, so... Well, um, I don't but, know that I agree you know, with we that. We would no. Well, and you, I would put it. Can sl- somebody? Hmm? Sl- I would put it not that in order for someone to understand the gospel, there needs to be regeneration. I would say in order for someone to understand the gospel, there needs to be the the scales being removed from from their eyes so that they can see the truth of the gospel. Correct. And then Correct. when they see it and believe in that moment that they believe, they're born again. So I don't put regeneration preceding understanding the gospel. I think a non-believer can understand it, and then when they choose to believe, that's when God makes them born again. But if the scales are removed from their eyes, isn't that something that's done by the Spirit? Yeah, it's done by the Spirit, but I wouldn't call that regeneration. Okay. We'd call that God giving them the ability to believe or not to believe, but I don't believe in uh, that they can't believe. At that point, they can believe, and then they're accountable for whether or not they do believe. Okay. But the truth is, and both of us would agree, that Jesus' sheep Mm -hmm. believe. Yes. Which comes first, the sheep or the belief? (laughs) (laughs) We don't want to have that debate online. (laughs) It's like the chicken or the egg. Yeah, the chicken came first. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Sheep believe. That's clear. Amen. Next truth, moving on. Yes. Verse 27. Um, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So those who are regenerated hear the voice of Jesus Christ and follow him. I put down in my notes, Jesus' sheep hear his voice, Mm -hmm. period. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's an ongoing, continuous tense, too. Mm -hmm. And the opposite is true. Those who aren't his sheep don't hear his voice. Agreed. Taking the illustration from nature, Mm -hmm. you know, a shepherd has a certain voice and a certain call to his sheep. Two different shepherds can separate two different flocks, Mm -hmm. commingling, but when one shepherd calls his sheep, they'll separate and follow him. That's just an illustration, and I've seen this firsthand. Oh, have you? Yeah, outside of Rome, on the Appian Way, where Paul had... Uh, was approaching Rome. Nice. When I did a tour there, we saw a shepherd there calling his sheep, and they just kind of trotted along right behind the shepherd as he had his unique call, and the other shepherd had his own unique call. Nice. So, yeah, if you struggle to recognize the voice of Jesus and believe in him, perhaps that's a sign that you're not his sheep. Yeah, which means you should join the flock as soon as possible. <laughs> I agree with that, Dan, but I don't know how you come to that when you say you have to first become a sheep. I call people to believe. I do, too. And then they'll be a sheep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, we're jabbing each other here. Let's go on. (laughs) Verse 27. And this isn't good fun. Yeah. You know, we see things from different perspectives, but we are brothers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's okay to wrestle with these things, provided we don't divide over them. But we don't, by God's grace. (laughs) Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Mm. There's three truths I drew out of this verse. Number one, Jesus' sheep hear his voice, and we already kind of talked about that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Number two, truth, Jesus Jesus' sheep are known by him. He knows who his sheep are. The third truth I see in this verse is Jesus' sheep follow him. So the application question is, do you follow Jesus? That's one indicator that you are in his flock, that he is your shepherd. If you profess to believe in Jesus but don't follow him, well, there's something inconsistent there. And I would challenge you to, to follow Jesus. He calls us, follow me. Yes, and willingly and joyfully as well. And yes. there's definitely scriptural support for this outside of this passage. Like, Oh, absolutely. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and mm-hmm. let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. For me, that verse really, really, really helps as a lens to view both sides of this debate, because mm-hmm. God knows who are his, but I don't always know who are his. No. And so for me, like God's responsibility, he knows who are truly his sheep. Mm-hmm. But the second quotation in Second Timothy 2.19 says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, that's our part, our responsibility. Yeah. If we profess to be believers in Jesus, then we need to repent from sin. 
If someone is living in unrepentant sin, then at very least, there's a question of, are you really saved? Are you really a sheep? Are you really a believer? Are you really a disciple and follower of Jesus if you're not willing to separate from your sin? Yeah, yeah. we want to be hesitant, pointing fingers at people and saying, you're saved and you're not. But it does say that the sheep will follow him. And it it makes me think back to, um, I believe it's Matthew chapter 7, where make a tree good and its fruit will be good, make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. And uh, somebody's behavior in the way that they treat other people and the way that they follow God's laws tells us something about where they are spiritually and whether they're one of Christ's sheep because they love him, but also in their theology. Yes, your theology, what you believe about God, and your behavior, how you respond to God, shows whether you actually know the Lord as your Lord and Savior and Good Shepherd and whether he knows you as his sheep. Also in Matthew 7, from verse 19 through 23, Jesus said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Mm. Um, It's important not just to know who Jesus is, but to make sure that he knows you. Yes. Like the old illustration of you may know who the president is, but if he doesn't know you, you're not getting into the White House. Yeah, that's true. Can I give one more cross-reference before we move on? Sure. In Psalm 100, verse 3, mm-hmm. it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Amen. Verse 28. Yes. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the can of worms. <laughs> this is the can of worms indeed. And uh, I, I don't think that you can separate verse 28 from verse 29. Okay. Um, so it goes on to say, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So it's kind of one thought there. What's the one thought, how you would summarize it? So I'll summarize it this way. Jesus gives eternal life. We would agree completely um, with that. I had that exact phrase in my notes. Jesus gives eternal life. Yeah. They will never perish. Those who have eternal life will never perish. Correct. Yeah. By definition, eternal lasts forever, so it has no we end. I agree with that. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will be able to take those who have received eternal life from the hand of Jesus. I agree with that observation, too. I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) My Father, who has given them to me, of course, God the Father, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So no one is able to take that person who has received eternal life through Jesus Christ out of the hand of the Father. Now, from my understanding of those passages, and and I would put that person themselves, although it doesn't say that explicitly in this passage, I believe Mm -hmm. it indicates in other places, I would argue that that person themselves cannot escape from the Father's hand. And that is where we part ways. That is where we part ways in interpretation, because it doesn't say that, so I'm not going to insert that. No. I would be interested in knowing what scriptures indicate that a a person can't themselves remove themselves from that position uh, where they stand by faith. So, but, you know, we don't have to debate it today, but... No. Yeah, that is where... I'm glad you pointed that out, Dan. It says no one will Mm -hmm. snatch them out and no one is able... So it does have to do with the the ability. Yes. In context, I see Jesus had already mentioned others being thieves and robbers and that he protects us from wolves. So I see this as an outside threat as far as Jesus is able to keep us from being stolen from his flock like a shepherd keeps wolves and thieves out of the flock. But we also know from Scripture that sheep are prone to wonder. Yes, they are. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
iniquity of us all. We, you know, we need to keep mm. falling back on, you know, only Jesus can save us. We all agree on that. But there are verses for me that help me to interpret this as mm-hmm. being only speaking of outsiders being thieves, that they're not going to be yeah. successful at stealing us from Jesus. In other words, I can't yes. blame someone else for causing me not to be Christian. There's verses that say, if listen, brothers, if one of you should go astray and someone bring him back, know that you've saved that person from death. And mm-hmm. there are people that go astray in Scripture yeah, and people that we can think of in our lives. And rather than take the route of questioning, were they ever saved to begin with, which is kind of a hypothetical, mm-hmm. not always helpful question because we can't know that, yeah. I would rather say, are you saved now? Yes. Then that's evidence that you were saved before. So I, I land somewhere in the middle on this debate. Yeah. Yeah. There is a potential, and Jesus even says it this way, there will be false prophets that arise, false Christ, mm-hmm. to deceive, if possible, the elect. So is it possible? Yes. For me, I'll just leave it as a question. It might be possible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jesus says, if possible. So Dan says, no, it's not possible. So correct. that's that. I say, even if it is a possibility, I wouldn't want to test that and find out. I have yeah. a burden of, let me make sure I'm abiding in Christ, continuing to walk by faith, repenting of sin when I'm convicted of it, and then I don't ever have to worry. <laughs> exactly. And I'll tell you, just to be clear, the last thing that I'm going to do, I've met people on the streets you know, that have talked about being a Christian and then not being a Christian, and maybe they want to be a Christian now, and maybe they don't, and they'll be kind of the bouncing back and forth. Mm-hmm. Thing. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time arguing with somebody on the street as to, you know, whether they were a Christian and then lost their faith and came back, or maybe they weren't a Christian. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, there are certain things that are important for our understanding of, of salvation and God's nature, but not necessarily helpful when we're out on the street talking to somebody. Yeah. yeah I'm going to do the same thing as you. I'm not going to talk about predestination in detail when I'm preaching, I'm going to say, repent and trust in Christ now while he's given you time. Yeah. That's the important message that people need to hear. It's it's not, right. it's, you know, how can we have peace with God, and this is how we can have peace yeah. with God. And I, I'm glad to hear you describe that, Dan, because it, I do have friends that also, they reject the once saved, always saved formula because mm-hmm. of how they've heard it presented by others. And I don't hear you being yeah. presenting it in this way. So it, it, it might be kind of a straw a straw man to say, once saved, always saved means if you yeah. if you ever prayed a prayer to accept Jesus in your heart, then he will yeah. never leave you or forsake you, even if you become an atheist and you deny him and you blaspheme the Holy Spirit and I want nothing to do mm-hmm. with this salvation anymore. Yeah. You would say they never really were saved, but there are some people that right. say, well, no, they're still saved because once saved, always saved, and that's a false doctrine. It is a false doctrine, and there's, yeah, on both sides of this debate, there are bad ways to handle it. I think we can agree with that. What would be, for example, you know? on the other side of the debate, How? what's a straw man that, you know, I don't represent? Well, that, that one that you just brought up, the, the the idea that just because somebody repeated a prayer, that must mean they, they're saved and it doesn't matter how they live, you know, that they can never lose their salvation. They they walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and wrote a date in the back of their Bible when they were, yeah. when they were 12, and then they've lived like a heathen for the rest of their lives, caring nothing for the things of God, and then still call themselves a Christian. Yeah. Well, how much bad fruit has to drop off the tree before you say it's a bad tree, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's another error, if we're talking about errors and extremes that people run to, and that is mm-hmm. that you can and have lost your salvation. I'm also not comfortable with the saying, I don't even like to use the word losing salvation, that's not a biblical mm-hmm. phrase for me. But yeah. so if someone says that you were saved and you lost your salvation, because I already talked about this earlier, if you lose something, you don't know where to go to find it again. Yeah, yeah. And salvation isn't something that when you have it, you lose it. It's more of something when you have it, you know where it is and you know how to abide in that place. I think there is a condition that Jesus said when you're talking about, if you abide in the vine, then you will bear much fruit. Yes. 
you are a branch, and any branch in me that doesn't bear fruit will be cut off and tossed into the fire. Yes. So to me, there is a danger of apostasy, which is the big word for losing one's faith or abandoning mm-hmm. the faith. Yeah, you would say abandoning rather than losing, right? Yeah. A is the negative term. Pistis is the Greek word for faith. So mm-hmm. um, falling away from the faith is a Greek word mm. that uh, I think it's a possibility. Again, I wouldn't want to test to find out if I can fall away from the faith. I think our job is to grow in our faith. And if we don't grow in our faith, there is a danger of falling away from the faith. Yes, I understand that's your position. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, but we've got some other big um, things to talk about before we finish up today. Are we ready to move on? If not, that's okay. We could go down the rabbit trail, but can I conclude it in this way, though? And I want to bring some comfort. Absolutely. There's a comforting way to approach this subject. I don't want anyone to hear me saying Christians are always worried about whether they're going to go to hell or not because you could lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. No, no. As a true believer, God gives us everything we need to live a life of faith. And as we avail ourselves to his leading and we follow him, it only confirms that we are his sheep. We are true believers. Mm -hmm. And to bring it right back to the name of the show, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We understand that's a process. And ultimately through the test of time, we will all see who the true and lasting believers are. God will be glorified in that he will not lose any of his own. So that we can take to the bank. Yes, we can. Amen. Amen. Now we can move on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the next uh, statement is a a can of worms as well. Um, Not as much between the two of us, but, you know, for people that read it and are trying to understand it. Um, I and the Father are one. Mm -hmm. That's verse 30. And one in what way is the question that I hear come up. Right. Because if you talk to a Christian, you're going to get one answer. If you talk to a Muslim, you're going to get another answer. If you talk to a Mormon, you're going to get a third answer. If you talk to a New Ager, you're going to get a different answer. And so it's kind of all over the place. Uh oh. Um, Are you talking about Mormons again, Dan? Yeah. We had a we had a comment on our show two weeks ago. Someone com- we did commented on our website. Uh, they didn't give a name, so I don't know if it's a male or female. But it's visitor number nine five seven nine to oacnorcal.org. By the way, mm-hmm. you can visit oacnorcal.org, and there's a little chat feature where you can leave us comments. And we want those comments. So yeah, please do let us know your thoughts. Let us know your questions. Mm-hmm. But visitor number nine five seven nine said this: I've listened to your radio show on ten eighty a.m. Santa Cruz. I enjoyed your program and found it insightful until last week when you spoke poorly of the Mormons. Sad face. And I replied, hi, thanks for the nice words. Can I ask you what you thought was spoken poorly about the Mormons? Are you LDS yourself? LDS stands for Latter-day Saints. Yes, yes. So I think that was in reference to when we said that there are verses in this chapter that Mormons Mm -hmm. take out of context, Uh, especially we're going to get into it in a few more verses where it says, as I said, you are gods. Yeah, big one. But even this one, I've had debates with Mormons. Mm-hmm. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. They say Jesus and the Father are one in purpose, right? Yes. But Dan and I, we say Jesus and the Father are one in essence. They're one being. They're one God. But yes. Mormons don't believe they're one God. They think they're... They don't. They're separate. Yeah, they believe they are separate beings, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are each separate deities. They all agree in purpose, yeah, but they are actually separate um, in actuality. But our, just to have side-by-side perspective of this verse, is mm-hmm. this supports the Trinity rather than refutes it. It's Correct. I and the Father are one. Are one what? Mm-hmm. One being. Are one. He doesn't add any qualifiers. They're one yeah. God, but they are two distinct persons of the Trinity. One God. There's a principle that we should consider that when we're looking at a text, we're not, we shouldn't be trying to understand the text or understand the situation as if it was in the current day, as if the words that were being used were being understood in a modern context. This was written 2,000 years ago. And how did the immediate audience understand what Jesus was saying? Exactly. It's a good question to ask when interpreting, and it actually tells us. It does. In verse 31, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. 
because they interpreted this as Jesus claiming to be God, yes. which they rejected and considered blasphemy. Yeah, that's right. It goes on and it says, you know, Jesus asked, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews said, yeah, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy that you being a man make yourself God. So the claim um, that Jesus was making was crystal clear to the Jews. So from that perspective, the claim that he was making should be crystal clear to us. He didn't argue against it. Jesus actually caught the the Jewish religious leaders in their own hypocrisy. But um, let's but interpret Jesus, this claim. That yeah. You make yourself mm-hmm. God. I don't think that he makes himself God. He was mm-hmm. God. Correct. And he made himself Correct. a man at the same time. He never gave up his nature as God. And some cross-references, Philippians chapter 2, being then in the very form of God, He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be be grasped grasped or something that he would be stealing to claim that he is equal with God the Father. But he humbled himself and became found in the appearance of a man, in the form of a man. And he humbled himself Mm -hmm. to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God gave him a name above every other name, that at the name Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God the Son humbled himself and then he was exalted to sit again on the glorious throne as God the Son is with God the Father. Mm -hmm. It perfectly fits with the doctrine of the Trinity, with the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so that's the framework that, you know, we need to harmonize Scripture with Scripture. That's right. Another good cross-reference regarding that when he said, I and the Father are one, is Deuteronomy 6.4, which is often called the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is something that believing Jews then, and I think even in modern times, they would say that every day to remind them of the oneness of God. They say, you know, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then Jesus comes in and says, I and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. There's a direct connection there, which is probably why the re- the Jews reacted so strongly, so quickly. Yeah. And he is the Lord. So right. the, the only way to, to solve this, it's difficult mentally to wrap our brains around the doctrine of the Trinity, that there's one it God, is. but three persons. But it really is the best way of taking the evidence of what he said about himself, that there is only one God. That's point one. The Father is God. Clearly, the Bible teaches that. That's point two. Point three, Jesus is God. He's called God, and here is a place where he calls himself God. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit is God. So how are mm-hmm. all four of these truths uh, harmonized? That they all three are the one true and living God, uh, but right. they're distinct persons. The other ways that people try to harmonize them end up destroying each each one of those truths. And mm-hmm. that's why I pick on the Mormons sometimes. Sorry if you're a Mormon. Yeah. If there is only one God, and God himself says that, and you say Jesus is a God, but he's not the almighty God or the eternal God, yeah. you make Jesus out to be another God if you're a Mormon. So then there's two gods, at least. Actually, yeah, Mormons theoretically at least, believe in in numberless gods, millions of gods, and that they can become gods themselves. Eternal regression, yeah, they don't know. And they won't tell you this when they're at your doorstep or on the street, that, that God also was created, and there were gods that created those gods before him. But what mm-hmm. does the Bible teach about this? Were there gods before God existed, or is God eternally existent? And there's no other God. Yeah, God has eternally existed. He has always been and always will be, and that's pretty clear. I mean, I go back to Isaiah 43 and 44 usually when I'm talking to Mormons or other groups that believe in something similar. Yeah, you have a passage memorized, I believe. Can you share that with us? Yeah, I've got a couple of them. Yeah, Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, I believe it is. Um, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no correct. God. I equip yeah. you, though you do not know me. So before him and after him, there's no God formed. There is no before him and after him because he's eternal. He's the I am. That's who Jesus is claiming to be. Yeah. I'd like to add one more passage there because it's connected with those other two. We've got Isaiah 43 and we've got Isaiah 45. And then in Isaiah 44, it describes it this way. Thus says the Lord, the King of of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. Mm-hmm. Two persons, 
one name, both called the first and the last, and both the Father is called the first and the last, and Jesus calls himself the first and the last. Right. So we've we've once again gotten a foreshadowing of the Trinity right there in the book of Isaiah, and it shows up other places in the Old Testament too. Good. So we've established that there is only one God, biblically. Correct. But then yes. is Jesus contradicting as we proceed to the next verse? Jesus quotes mm. something from the Bible, verse 34. Yeah. He answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods, plural, gods. Yeah. And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus continues, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So what does Jesus mean there if he really believes there is only one God? Well, in this context, if you read it carefully, I think it explains itself pretty well. Yeah. Is not it written in your law, I said that you are gods? In what context? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the word of God came to these men, that would be the prophets and the leaders of Israel. Israel. They were chosen to speak the word of God. And the other passage that comes to mind is when we had Moses and his brother Aaron. Moses said, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And then God sent Aaron and said, he will be the one that speaks for you. It will be as if you were God and as if Aaron were your prophet. Moses wasn't really God, but Aaron had been sent to speak for Moses. Same kind of way. The people that were sent to speak for God were called gods because they spoke God's word. It's a prophetic thing. Not because they are gods, but because they represented God. No, not because they are gods. And that passage that they're talking about is in the Psalms. Psalms, and the passage goes on to say, I say you are gods, all of you, yet you will die like men and fall like any prince. Yes, the next verse, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So speaking of the position of judges, there we go. Mm -hmm. this is what I was taught in Bible college, and Mm -hmm. it works very well. He placed these people in the position of judges, where they would determine Mm -hmm. the fate of people, whether they would live or whether they would die. That is a decision that's up to God. And so in that position as judges, he's basically warning them, like, hey, you better represent me well, because I've put you in my place, and nevertheless, you are not gods. You will die like men and fall like any prince. So it's really a humbling thing, not an exalting thing that God is doing and Jesus is doing by saying, you are gods. But it's used in a way, you know, in the context of Jesus claiming to be the Son of God and being understood as claiming to be God himself. It's used in a way that Jesus defends Mm -hmm. his own deity by appealing to a scripture that at least on the surface of it, the face of of it says that there can be other people that represent God. And that is yeah. what Jesus is claiming to be. Not only yeah. God, but the man that represents God in human form. Yeah, but he even elevated it beyond that because he's not just saying, of course, that I represent God, but he said, wait, I'm the one the Father consecrated, specially prepared and blessed and sent into the world. Mm-hmm. And the implication, I believe, there is that sent from heaven into the world. And, and of course, that's a claim to be Messiah. But that's also him making a contrast between himself and previous prophets who merely spoke the words that were given to him. And and then, as we see in the beginning of this book, he didn't only speak the word, he was the word. Yes, and he proved it in verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. So his works are the works of God, and so it shows that he he is God. That's right. And it goes on to say, but if I do them, which of course he did, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And there, once again, he's claiming that that oneness with God, that equality with the Father. Mm-hmm. It's a mystical and a mysterious unity. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. It is. And it's just really hard for us to picture or visualize or illustrate with anything from nature in this world, because God is separate and unique from this world. So he's transcendent, yeah. and our brains are finite. And uh, so <laughs> I don't blame anyone who struggles with this doctrine of the Trinity. Oh, absolutely not. How it all works together. I mean, theologians have written volumes on the hypostatic 
static union of mm-hmm. the Father and the Son. But I do ask people to believe it. If Jesus yeah. says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's it. Is God's word trustworthy or not? And we would say and know that it absolutely is. Yep. He who predicted and pulled off his own death, burial, and resurrection is trustworthy. That's right. Yeah, that's pretty good credentials as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, but just as we've talked about in the beginning, and we need to wrap up here, verse 39 mm-hmm. shows where their hearts were at. They weren't really open to this. It says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And just to finish off uh, the chapter, we have no more quotes from Jesus. So it's it's a little bit of narrative we can use to wrap up. So that was the end of the discussion. And Jesus, verse 40, went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. Verse 41. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Amen. So we have the contrast. There's some who believe and some who don't in the end. John writes this so that you may believe. We want to appeal to you non-believers today. Hey, the world is divided over this one question. Who do you say Jesus is? Hmm. So who do you say Jesus is, dear friends? So in conclusion... Let me share some good news with you. Jesus has clearly revealed to the world who he is, that he's the Son of God, God the Son, the Good Shepherd, Lord and Savior to all who believe in him and follow him as his sheep. Do you have that relationship with Jesus Christ? If not, would you like to enter into that relationship today? As this chapter concluded, everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true? Put your trust in Jesus and receive him as your Lord and Savior. The moment that you put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior and commit your life to follow him, believing that he lived and died for you and rose again from the grave, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says God is good to those who call upon him, those who call upon him in truth. So pray in your own words. Who do you believe Jesus is? Call upon him while he may be found. Draw near to him, and today could be your day of salvation. Eternal life begins now and lasts forever. Jesus said in John 17, This is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. So we hope you come to know him today and continue to follow him, so you may have the full assurance of faith, firm until the end, knowing that by faith in Christ you have eternal life. Glory to God. You can know that you're saved through faith in the truth. So God bless you as you continue to dwell on truth. So yes, and as we finish up today. We just want to continue to encourage you to, number one, continue listening in. We want to continue to bless and encourage you. Um, If you want to find out more and dig into these things a little more, we encourage you to find a good local Bible-believing church. And if you don't know of one in your area, you can reach out to us and we'll help you find one. Um, But most of all, that you will read these words for yourself that you will pray that God gives you understanding and opens your heart, and that you will come to him in repentance and faith. Because we don't only want to see you join us um, next Sunday or wherever you are listening to this podcast. We want to see you join us in heaven. So have a blessed week. An announcement as we close. This Friday, I will be at Capitola Beach there by the wharf. There's going to be a paddle out. Um, Some different churches are coming together for an outreach to commemorate on Good Friday, the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. It's a kind of a Hawaiian tradition, but come on out to the beach and meet me. I'll have my paint board out and we'll be sharing the good news with anyone who would like to know more. So that and other outreaches you can find at oacnorcal.org. You can check out our outreach schedule. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to get your comments. You can comment there on the website, and we will possibly share on the air, like we did today, what comments come in.
So for more information, you can also go to dwellontruth.org. Yeah, so may God bless you as you continue to dwell on truth. Amen. Have a great week.